Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening in. This is Shane Claiborne, and I am so glad you could join me for this uh, half hour or so. Uh, I'm I'm really excited because this was a little bit of a spontaneous show. Some of these we have planned, and some of them are um, a little bit more rolling with the spirit. And I um, am really glad to have uh, my friend, the Reverend William H. Lamar IV, pastor of Metropolitan AME Church, uh, with me today. He has been in the forefront of something that's been all over the news in the United States, uh, but it's a it, it, it's it's a way of interacting with. Um, the hatred and the white supremacy that we see surfacing around our country, uh, but a way that I think really honors our faith and Jesus and protects the the historic legacy of the church that he's a part of. So uh, first of all, thanks for joining me, Ro. Good to see you. Oh, man. Great, great to be with you, Shane. Yeah. So for folks, you know, we're going to get to the lawsuit against the Proud Boys, which was, uh, I think, the, the latest excuse to hang out and talk with you. But uh, first, I think just to give us a little history of uh, Metro AME and and um, and and I mean, there's there's been some really good stuff around Juneteenth, around the different specials of the historic black church in America. But these um, these spaces like Emmanuel AME, like your space, um have uh, been, you know, under attack by by white supremacists and groups. I mean, that's nothing new, but these new kind of fresh expressions are really alarming. So, um, yeah, give give, a, give us a little history for those of us that didn't grow up in the AME church. Uh, although I'm in Philly, you know, we got some of the oldest uh, ones in the country here. But give us a little sure. bit of the backdrop, man. Yeah. Yeah, gladly. So the AME church is a movement that really has to locate its founding in what scholars call an Afro-Christianity, meaning that those who were brought here had faith, had philosophy, had ethical systems, and what they knew of God, of the divine, they married and commingled with what they learned here and so the genesis of the Afri- African-American church, the African Methodist, Methodist Episcopal Church, is this merger of what some would call African retentions, theologically, ethically, um, and philosophically, alongside the kind of evangelical Methodism that they encountered here. And part of the reason they were attracted to Methodism was that Methodism uh, was, was anti-slavery. It was not mm-hmm. pro-equality, which is different, but it was against slavery. And so they were attracted to it. So Richard Allen, whom we locate as our founder, is one who figured out how to separate himself along with others from the control of white Methodists who did not want to give them equality within the confines of the church. 
And so they determined that they would have their own church, their own denomination, their own expression of faith. And Metropolitan AME Church is a Washington iteration of that Philadelphia movement. So what happened in Philadelphia, as you know, happened in St. George's Church. There was a white Methodist church here, Ebenezer, similar racialized issues. And the Africans within that church decided they would assert their independence as children of God. So I always want to be careful uh, that I locate the agency for the founding of these churches, not with those who were racist, those who were discriminatory, but with the people who yearn to be free as they always had been free. They determined they needed spaces where they could express their faith. And what they were clear about is that they would not reinvent the kind of discriminatory, racialized faith that was visited upon them, upon others, when they started their own denominations and their own ecclesial realities. Mm-hmm. And uh, as as usual, when folks find some... Uh, gains in equality and freedom, there is a backlash, or as as I think Van Jones called it, a white lash. Maybe others have said that, you know, this re- rebuke of white supremacy to um, kind of stand against any progress that's made. And, and it, was that, the, has that been the case, like, as far as like explicit acts of vandalism or hatred have you had any of those over the centuries over the decades or was you know obviously this didn't come out of nowhere but i didn't know if your particular congregation has had you know a history of of having those kind of uh, racial terror acts done to them you know it's important to mention that when alan founded the church literally property they owned, the white Methodists took the property from them. They had to buy their own property back Mm -hmm. because the white Methodists refused to let them be free. And so what they did eventually is they filed suit in the Pennsylvania Supreme Court and won the right to incorporate. Uh, Our church has had bomb threats before uh, because of stances we've taken, because of persons whom we have invited. Uh, This is Definitely nothing new. You talked about Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston. What happened some years ago, it was the second time that happened. Uh, 150 some odd years ago, uh, the whites in Charleston, uh, South Carolina, destroyed that church before. So that was uh, history repeating itself. And that early destruction was because Marvisi and others hatched a rebellion out of the AME Church to get out of slavery because there were more enslaved folks in Charleston than there were white people because those folks who owned the enslaved were making a lot of money and the enslaved were really being put upon and they were looking for ways to be and to stay free. So you also have to bring Ida B. Wells Barnett into the conversation who was an AME laywoman who tried to push the issue also of violence against Black people, property, institutions. And what's fascinating is that many of the AME clergy of her day, my colleagues, males, were too afraid to join with her. And so when I think about our suing the Proud Boys, it is of a piece with the courage and strength of the Ida B. Wells Barnett's of the world's, the Fannie Lou Hamers, the Mumbets, Elizabeth Freeman, who sued for her freedom in the 1700s as an enslaved woman. So, you know, the, the use of every available means to be free and to remain free is something that is as old as the African presence in, in the American empire. Yeah, man, I got the, I got the hairs on my arm standing up that oh, rich man. history. And, uh, 
So we're going to get to that. But, you know, I think the backdrop when we when we talk about this lawsuit that's been, you know, making the news and that's really stirred a lot of people's hearts is, um, I mean, when Trump was elected, some of us said, you know, uh, Trump didn't change America. He just revealed America. A lot of this stuff was already, you know, there It was beneath the surface, but it sure got let go. And when we see scriptures talking about principalities and powers, I mean, that's what we're talking about, right? <laughs> These are real forces that destroy, uh, do so much damage. And, you know, in some ways it feels like things did get amplified and emboldened and more explicit in some of the acts of, of, um, racial terrorism and vandalism and hatred. I mean, some of it just got recorded and went viral. So we've got new, you know, tools at our hands, like our cell phones, but, um, what I mean, what 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 are some of the things that you you see as you kind of take a pulse on where we're at in our country that that led to the um, the vandalism and and uh, the the hatred that we saw you know kind of express itself at your church? Well, thank you, and uh, I'm plugging up to make sure my computer doesn't die. I apologize. Um, you know, one thing to m- mention is that politics in the United States have been racialized from the beginning. So let's talk about Richard Nixon's Southern strategy, which he was very clear that he could use race to siphon off votes from the Democrats in the South and make them Republicans. Ronald Reagan began his campaign in in, uh, Philadelphia, Mississippi, standing essentially on the remains of Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner. Uh, So what Trump is doing is what Reagan did is what Nixon did, is what was done during the time of Reconstruction. Hollywood is built on the movie The Birth of the Nation. And what that movie is, it is lies and racialized propaganda saying that during Reconstruction, ignorant Black men uh, who were running legislatures in the South destroyed the country. That's not the true story of Reconstruction. The true story of Reconstruction is that it's one of the most egalitarian political realities in the history of the United States. And so I say all that to say that what Trump did is he took the corporate clothing, the suit and tie off of the racialized politics that America has always practiced. Even George H.W. Bush and the Willie Horton ad. Uh, you cannot escape the fact that anti-Blackness gets votes and gets power. And Republicans aren't the only ones that do it. Uh, Democrats do it as well. And so the whole house is built upon it. And what Trump does is he makes steroidal use of a playbook. He, in, he injects steroids. And I grew up in Macon, Georgia. And one of the things that we would always hear the elders now ancestors saying is that you never stir a hornet's nest. So these mm-hmm. hornets were always flying in formation, uh, keeping watch over power. But Trump stirred it up. Yeah. And, um, it's exactly what you have. Yeah. And so... Uh, there's some folks that might be listening outside of the U.S. and give a little bit of a backdrop to the, this recent act of vandalism and hatred that that uh, happened at Metropolitan AME. And there were several Black Lives banners uh, that were ripped down, but other things that were done, too. Right. So j- just to think as people are even reading the news, you kind of get different mm-hmm. takes on this. So give us a little timeline and a little uh, overview of what happened that led up to this lawsuit. Yes, really briefly. So December of 2020, uh, Sunday evening, the Proud Boys were in town 
and they had torn down Black Lives Matter signs at congregations. They breached our property. So they trespassed the fence. We had a Black Lives Matter sign. They tore it down. They actually burned the sign of a sister congregation. They shouted racial epithets right there in front of the sanctuary. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the video is available and has been widely seen. And when they did that, uh, we were approached by the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and some pro bono attorneys to see if we would be willing to sue, interested in suing. And unanimous, unanimously, the church leadership said, yes, we want to sue. Uh, there were other churches who decided for many reasons not to sue, but it is in Metropolitan's DNA to stand, to fight, uh, to not give in to fear or silence. And so we began the suit uh, a couple of years ago. And um, what, what what happened uh, last week was that a judge gave us a, 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 a suit settlement, a default judgment of over one million U.S. dollars. Mm. Mm. And. When we were together, we we uh, we've had an excuse to be together a few times. But when we were together, uh, uh, talking about this phenomena of Christian nationalism um, sweeping our country, it is it is really a a version of white supremacy and racism that's trying to camouflage itself as Christianity and use the symbols and the language of Christianity, but doesn't look much like Jesus. And if God is love, it doesn't look much like God. So, uh, but this is, this is not just like kind of, um, one random uh, act of hatred or violence, but it's actually a part of something that is bigger in our country. So maybe say a little, little bit more of that, because I know when we were together, that's exactly what we and a bunch of other friends uh, were kind of brainstorming on how do we get at this? Um, you know, the, the, the lawsuit is powerful. And, uh, you know, I, I hope it helps to bankrupt hatred and some of these, these groups that are, that are using that, but um, you know, not everybody's a proud boy, right? There's a lot of other iterations of this right. that, that end up um, kind of expressing itself in the really um, uh, sickening forms like January 6th or like what happened in December at your place. Well, let me refer your listeners. And again, I really appreciate the listeners interest to, <laughs> to the Southern Poverty Law Center and Morris D's and the lawsuit that they used to break the Klan. Uh, mm. What they did is eventually they sued for ownership of the name of the Klan and for ownership of the Klan's assets. And it was a mother who was suing the Klan because the Klan had executed uh, her son. So for us, this movement of white nationalism, which really also takes religious overtones and undertones through white Christian nationalism, asserts that it is by divine right and uh, by divine will that white people should control this land and should control the politics, the economics, the theological vision of the space. And what we are doing and what we have always done is to challenge that alongside allies such as yourself and others who know, as you said, that this has nothing to do with the God who is the God of us all, uh, my argument, and, and it's not just my argument, is that this is energized by demographic anxiety. So I know that some persons in the UK may be listening, and that demographic anxiety is not just resonating in the United States, but it resonates in the United Kingdom, it resonates in Germany and France, 
their entire political movements uh, who gain energy from xenophobic, genoistic, jingoistic, anti-Black, racist kinds of politics that tell people these folks are taking what is yours. Mm. And what you and I believe is we do not believe in any kind of zero-sum reality because I win does not mean that you lose. We can win together. And there are plenty of resources. We do not believe in a theology, an economics, a politics of scarcity. There is abundance in the world. And what we have to do is make sure that there are people who are not hoarding what God intends, nor people groups who try to hoard what God intends for us all to enjoy so that we can all flourish together along with the earth itself and other creatures. Yeah, as a poor people's campaign folks say that there's no scarcity of resources, only a scarcity of will and, yes. compa- and compassion. Yes. So, uh, I mean, this is a big deal, though, right? Like, uh, were you expecting to um, a, a victory in the lawsuit itself? And, and you know, is this sort of one step towards justice and accountability for what was done? Um, you know, and well, maybe I'll, also re- go, go ahead. Answer, yeah. No, no, no. I was, I was just going to say. I am not surprised because we had some extraordinary attorneys who were working pro bono. Uh, we had the lawyers committee, as I mentioned, uh, lawyers from Paul Weiss, a storied law firm uh, in the United States. Uh, it is really humbling to consider the number of hours, the intellectual energy they put into it. And I'm also commending the judge at this moment because Judge Kravitz's opinion is thoughtful and balanced with an eye toward ensuring that frivolity cannot ensue after the case itself. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're very, very pleased uh, that we got the judgment. We hope the judgment is has a deterrent uh, factor, of, but we also know that these groups are gaining strength and they are raising money and they are being given money by powerful, potent political forces in the United States. And so, uh, you know, we must continue to be vigilant, but we definitely have rejoiced in this victory. And uh, we look forward, as I said, to pushing the envelope because there are more steps in our legal strategy. Next is to actually try to sue to own the name Proud Boy so that we own the name and that we can go after anyone who uses the name uh, for these devilish politics and this kind of violence that we mentioned. Yeah, and and there's also, it's important to note that there's also criminal charges, right, for many of the Proud Boys. So there's uh, jail time that they may face and things like that. But this is really just related to um, the the hatred that was done and the vandalism that was done um, on your space. Um, So will that stick? Can they appeal it? Does it it go anywhere from there? Is this just a decision that's made and and you keep moving? No, it can can definitely be appealed, but it's going to be very difficult for them. Plus, it was a default judgment. None of them showed up to answer what was charged. And that is the ultimate disrespect of the system. I'm just going to be very clear that I would never disrespect the court system like that. I would be afraid to do so. And so they were belligerent and they refused to show up. Yeah. uh, And I mean, the the uh the irony you know of the, the using the name proud boys there is there is kind of an arrogance that we're beyond this law and i mean even we see even that in you know former president trump and uh, so many folks that think that um 
that they they're above the system or you know beyond any reach of the system um so how can folks support you right now i mean you know we got a we got a little little movement here folks listening in red letter christians that love jesus folks that care about stuff like this i mean and and i'm also wondering you know other folks that have had similar experiences of hatred or vandalism i mean um is this a a strategy that might other other folks might also want to incorporate into the movement for justice and liberation well look, anyone who wishes to support us uh, we we can easily be found Metropolitan African Methodist Episcopal Church in Washington, D.C. We're easily found on the web, our webpage, and there are other ways to get to us. We're uh, on social media at Metropolitan AME. Um, There are so many people who have dealt with this kind of violence. And if I may be very clear, there are many who have dealt with this violence to the point of the loss of life. We were spared that kind of reality but so many are not. And so I've been uh, privileged to attend some meetings with persons who knew of folks who lost their lives, who were killed in synagogues, in churches, um, people from the Sikh faith and other groups, uh, Muslims who had been traumatized and had their lives taken from them. There are groups of people who meet to encourage one another and to strategize to ensure that no one else has to feel the pain of it losing a loved one to religious hatred. Mm-hmm. And so it is indeed a fraternity, a sorority to which no one wants to belong. Uh, but there are more and more members every day. And for you know, a lot of folks too are trying to fight hatred uh, and violence, but not on its own terms. So I thought this is a really powerful example of that. Um, doc, like you said, I'd be well, Dr. King, so many folks uh, use the the criminal justice system to try to um, uh, undermine the forces of evil and racism. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but uh, it seems like a, a tool worth uh, giving a shot at. And I was thinking of even groups like the, you know, the National Rifle Association, which um, uh, I, I've often said, you know, not everyone in the National Rifle Association is a uh, uh, a white supremacist, but it's kind of like McDonald's. Not everything there is a hamburger, but without hamburgers, you don't have a McDonald's. And without, you know, kind of militant uh, white supremacists, the NRA wouldn't stand a chance. Um, but there's a lot of lawsuits that are coming against the NRA, against gun profiteers. Um, cities like Philadelphia outlawed um assault rifle rifles weapons of war but then the nra took philadelphia and other municipalities you know like it to court so there's there's a battle in the courts right and um you know i've got this you know i've got i've got some anarchist tendencies uh in the tradition of dorothy day and tolstoy and others man but i love to see the 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 these breakthroughs you know so um and and let me be clear shane we are clear that whatever victory you get in court is provisional. So a lot of us were deluded into thinking the Supreme Court was a bastion of democracy and and liberalism, progressivism. But that was only a blip in the 200 plus year of the court. The court has been conservative. The church has sided with business over workers, with the powerful over the weak. And they are reasserting the traditional conservatism, the conditional way the Supreme Court has blessed 
present power arrangements. And yeah. they mean to make sure that the Supreme Court does not do anything to make this a more progressive, a more welcoming, uh, a space more given to equality uh, than it is given to this fascism that we see today. Yeah. So I guess in the last couple of minutes, I, I, my my last thought was more um, just pastoral and as as one who cares about you and your congregation and um, you know having leaned into that tradition as a as a you know white person in Philadelphia for the last twenty five years with Richard Allen you know the AME Church here like I I, I feel like I have just been inspired by the resilience and the way that a community pulls together. I mean, even like Emmanuel AME did, you know, I, I, I know, you know, Reverend Sharon Richard really well. And mm-hmm. that community pulls together in hard times. I mean, you got hundreds of years of history of that, but um, I'm sure you're really proud of how you're, it already sounds like your congregation came together to um, neither kind of hunker down in fear nor to like lash out in hatred, but to say this has to be addressed and confronted. Uh, but how's the community doing in all that, man? And oh, how can man. we be praying for you? Thriving, my friend, thriving, ready to stand not only up for ourselves, but for others who find themselves in similar situations and believing that this embodies the ministry of Jesus, worship, liberation, service. And so we are excited to to serve here in the belly of the beast, in the capital of the American empire, to give witness to the revolution that is the gospel and to participate in the same. So thankful to have the conversation a joy to address uh, your audience uh, globally, and hopefully uh, we'll hear from some folks who are listening today, your thoughts, your ideas. Yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, I know you're busy, so it means a lot that you took a little space this week following the lawsuit. And I think of Dr. King saying the church is not meant to be the servant of the state or the master of the state, but the conscience, uh, the holy prophetic conscience of our nation. So y'all are doing that. As our our brother Michael Ray Matthews says, we're not meant to be the chaplains of empire, but the prophets of resistance. So Mm -hmm. thank you, my brother, and send our love to your community. Thank you, my friend. So let's pause there. And then if you're cool, man, let's just spend a few, a couple minutes talking a little bit more about Christian nationalism. Is that cool? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, now the the folks in the podcast are sort of listening in. This is a little like kind of the the conversation after the conversation. But um, we've been thinking with a whole lot of friends about how to have sort of a united front, um, especially as Christians, but all there's people of other faiths and of no faith in particular also that are trying to wrap our heads around both the theology and the tactics and organizing that has led to this sort of um, uh, white Christian nationalism sweeping our country. So um, what, what are you thinking? Like, are you, are you, op, are you, are you hopeful with some of the things that we see happening and what are, what are some of the handholds, you know, that you, you feel like in those conversations that we're, we're walking away with some, um, because it feels like the other side's really, really organized and we've got to, we've got to figure out how to confront the theology and the, uh, the fears and the power dynamics that are there too. Right. I tell you, I, I, I wax and wane, uh, between believing that something can change and feeling like, uh, as Jeremiah Wright said, the cake has been cooked and you can't take the eggs and the vanilla extract and the sugar out. As long as I stay here, 
<laughs> I'm committed to the project and making it better. Yeah. But I also know there's a muscularity to the resistance and there is a life or death quality to the resistance. Um, I'm not so sure. Uh, I think that this white Christian nationalist project is drawing from the religious root of this nation. I mean, there is very little space between settler colonial Christianity and this white Christian nationalism, mm-hmm. right? The founding religious impulse is tied in to this contemporary impulse, which is about who can exist in space, who can be a citizen, whose humanity is holy and sacred and, and worth protection. So what I do is uh, I I am joyful in the resistance. I am joyful yeah. in fight, but I am not delusional about what this project has always been. And I, I am not sure except for very brief moments that has been committed to being anything other than what it was at its founding. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I just feel like too many of us in the religious communities, politically, economically, as well as theologically, have capitulated in the interest yeah. of comfort, uh, in the interest of access, uh, in the interest of praying at Democratic National Com- Conventions and, you know, hanging out at the mayor's office or whatever it is. Uh, and so we got a long way to go, my friend, a long yeah. way. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's part of years ago when, you know, Reverend Barber said the way that we change the narrative is by changing the narrators, you know, and trying to amplify yes. the, the voices of a, a healthier, more robust faith. And yes. sad, sadly, I think what, what's happened to a lot of folks that grew up and the more toxic versions of white evangelicalism, like I did, um, it, there, there's a sense of just leaving it all. And sometimes that still gives a colonizing power to the voices that have been um, the loudest, but not always the most beautiful or loving or Christ-like voices. So um I, you know, I think, I think there's a lot of folks that are looking for a home and sometimes it's hard for a white person to go, well, I'm just going to, you know, jump in at, at Metropolitan AME or something like that, because you want to come with the right posture and, you know, the, the respect for the Afrocentric tradition. But uh, I think there's a lot of folks looking for a home. And if anything, we've tried to be with Red Letter Christians, it's a big tent, you know, where folks Mm. can find some of the voices and the, 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 the real concrete demonstrations of love and justice and real neighborhoods and communities. I mean, right before I came in here, I was out in the garden reading uh, <laughs> with, mm. with kids, you know, the, the mm. open fire hydrant. So like I get a lot of energy from having my feet on the ground in a neighborhood, but mm. man, sometimes when I look at what's happening in the Southern Baptist convention and that stuff, I just like, Ooh, it's, it's like, like uh, brother Jeremiah said, you, you know, it's, it's baked in the cake and some of the, those, those institutional, um histories they they're built on faulty ground and it's hard to uh <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to just do a little a little uh new paint job or put up some new sheetrock or something in the house it might, might need to be <laughs> torn down right yeah it's it's tough man but i i believe that it will take centuries to unravel as it has taken centuries to settle and i'm not willing to give up i just yeah. think we you know that you're right. We ha- and we have to institutionalize this, right? We have to give it the space, the air, the oxygen, the soil, the sunlight that it might grow. And I'm 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 committed to that, man. I really am. 
Yeah, me too. Well, in our, I want, like in our closing of this uh, little thing, um, I wonder if there's, there's any ideas for where, how people could be more um, engaged uh, in combating, you know, white Christian nationalism. I mean, we've given people a lot of tools, you know, doing a personal audit of, what are the books on your shelf? You know, who are the people speaking into your life? Like, who are the folks that are shaping your theology? Um, are we listening to um, uh, the the voices of black and brown and indigenous theologians? Are we reading books, you know, listening to music and, and stories and getting, you know, getting a deeper theology, but um, um, proximity to the people impacted? I mean, those are all things that we talk about all the time, but I wonder if you have any other kind of closing thoughts of, uh, what folks might do to to lean into the good stuff right now, man. Well, I'll tell you what, man, I think nothing beats relationship and proximity. And by that, I don't just mean popping in and popping out, but I mean really hearing from those who are challenged, but then understanding that it is more than their challenge and they're being pathologized. It is learning about the fullness of their humanity and really how they have come to live and sometimes thrive in these adverse situations that we are not just teachers, but we're also students. That we go to learn, we go to listen, and to hear what their visions may be for of the world that is coming and how we can participate. My, my eschatology is that God is making all things new right now. What I'm going to do is hurry up and find out where God is doing that. The God is turning over tables. The revolution has begun and I've got to find it. I've got to participate. I've got to preach my way into it, love my way into it, organize my way into it, meditate my way into it, laugh my way into it, dance my way into it. And, and I cannot bring it but I can be given eyes to see and ears to hear where it's breaking out. And I join my energies to that. Ooh, if I had the organ, man, I'd have it going right now. So <laughs> now this is a gift, my brother. Uh, I'll let you go, but thanks for listening in everybody. We're going to do more stuff together. And I'm always uh, glad to be uh, with my friend and my brother, the Reverend William H. Lamar, the fourth. So uh, we'll, we'll keep watching what's happening and seeing how we can participate there, man. I hope to see you soon. Thanks. Thanks, Shane. Take care. God bless. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.